Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. So welcome over to Product. Today I'm here with Ben Kaiser, an old friend and currently the VP of Product at Contentful. Ben, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Hey, Eric. It's good to talk to you. Um, yeah, sure. I'm a product manager for the last 15 years or so, and I've been following a journey through six countries now, and, and this is my third global SaaS product that I worked on. And I, I came from a, a very speckled past of different kinds of jobs and doing different functions and uh, ended up as a product manager. Yeah, so talk to me about how you got into product management and what excites you about product management. So I'm actually just really grateful for product management because it's the one job that I think I can actually do and really stay engaged with and really continue to fall in love with all the time. It's a super challenging job. And I think what attracted me away from my other jobs was the the variety of things that you tackle and the complexity of the problem and software is interesting and systems are interesting. And so for me, it was like this combination of all of the things that I love to do and there was actually a job that I could get paid to do those things. So that for me, that was the sort of reason why I shifted. But my background includes everything from doing product design to content strategy to being a writer. I was a bartender in Yellowstone, fun fact. I mean, there's lots of different things that I did before that. and just got more and more attracted to product management. I was an engineer for a while as well. And, and I sort of saw how they did their work. And, and I said, hey, I want to do that. So take me through a little bit of your, your background in product management, what you did at the different companies, what you learned, maybe, you know, the, the short version, I guess. Yeah. So product management, my first kind of go at product management was actually as a content strategist who then was asked to kind of manage backlog for a customer. And so I sort of, I was at an agency and I was helping them with a commercial website that they were doing for a very large customer. And it sort of became that you couldn't actually make progress for the customer unless you could also work with engineering on features and changes to the website. It was an application actually, but that, so that was my first kind of experience. And then from that, I realized that there was a job there. There was a real job to be done there. And I just sort of made my way into software companies from this agency to software companies. And I've been sort of just following my nose ever since. Awesome. Awesome. Anything in particular you'd point to that you learned at, that your stops on your way to Contentful? Yeah, I think it's that you, you ha- there's no substitute for doing the work needed so that you can understand the actual problem that you're trying to solve in front of you. That the thing that you always have to go back to basics on every time is trying to understand what the customer is trying to do. And really, you know, the, the closer you can get to that, the more effective you can be in decision-making and the better you can think about processes that will help your team do that. That's really the one, I think the one thing that I have sort of learned the hard way over time. Yeah. So talk to me about your time now at Contentful. Talk to me about, you know, what you're doing there. What's the big problems you're trying to solve, challenges? Yeah. So Contentful is, for those who don't know the company, it's a, a content management platform. It was kind of known as a headless platform. It was a developer tool that you could put content into and then use our APIs to deliver that content in a very scalable way. 
And the magic there was that it was a very carefully thought through developer focused API set. And also it created a situation for developers where they could have total separation of concerns between the content and content production processes and the building of the delivery, the channel delivery process. So they, that was, I think, the magic of, of that uh, product. When I joined Contentful, they were just kind of in this moment between being a product and realizing that in order for us to really achieve our goals over time, we needed to be more than just a product that delivered content for channels that developers love to use. We wanted to be able to really help enterprises and small businesses and medium-sized businesses use their content infrastructure in a much more leveraged way. And so that means more participants into the, into the platform, essentially, like more people contributing, more people doing their work. And so the challenge that when I joined was we had a team of people that had been really, really good at knowing what developers wanted because that was the DNA. They always, you know, were DNA was completely developer focused company. And then to then talk to those folks about, okay, what do we need to do to transition for customers that we don't actually know very well? Like for example, content creators or people who orchestrate content across channels for campaigns or other kinds of uh, projects that they have, product managers, project managers, there's a whole bunch of people who use content and who need to work with content. And we don't know those folks. So there's two things that has to happen. First of all, we have to get to know those folks really deeply. We have to really understand what they're struggling with so that we can understand how we could help them. But then we also need a, a process and a system in place at Contentful that supports that learning and then supports turning that learning into solutions. And before, because everybody really knew the developer so well, we could really just get by talking to a few customers and, and each other uh, because we were all developers. But now that landscape, as I said, has changed. And so it's about turning from an inward focus where we kind of knew that customer so well by heart to now a really outward facing focus where we want to be able to embrace many more different kinds of customers that we may not know so well. So that's the challenge is then strategic and process. How do you get everybody tuned up to that new set of customers in a very customer-centric way? And then what is the process? What is the way that we work that actually supports that? So, so I think those are the big challenges. I don't know if I'm, I'm jumping ahead too far right now, but tell me a little bit about that process. Yeah, so when I joined Contentful and the, the model that I'd been very familiar with at different times at different moments of my career was product ownership, where you have a, a team of people and there's a product owner on that team. And that product owner is both a sort of, in a way, the, the motivator for the team and also ingests business requirements and talks to customers and tries to do all of that. And then they also are responsible for delivery and launch. So they, they end up sort of doing from A to Z following along with the team. And what this means then is the team is basically on a linear track from discovering something that they want to do all the way through to the launch and delivery before they can really pull their head up and think about the next thing to do. And this works, I think, in early stage startup, it definitely works because everybody's just learning how to work together as well as learning how to solve problems. But further along, when you want to be more strategic and it's not really obvious exactly what customer to tackle next or what customer problem to tackle next, rather, you need to give product managers a different kind of space to work in. And you also need to give the, the design and engineering folks a different space to work in that's much more focused on what they can become masters of. So the process that we embrace is called dual track agile. It's not a, it's nothing new. I didn't invent it. It's uh, Jeff Patton writes about it in, in user story mapping. Marty Kagan writes about it. The basic idea here is that 
by focusing product managers on problem and opportunity discovery, and then separately focusing design and engineering on solution discovery and creation, that those two sets of people can become really expert and masters of those domains, rather than sort of peanut buttering across the domains and trying to make product managers not only be great at that, but also great at delivery and make, making engineers be great at delivery, but also great at some of the customer research that product managers engage in. So that the idea here is more specialization as we wanna kind of grow the team's ability to do more and tackle more things strategically. So more specialization, and also, you know, the, the upside of it is it just makes your life way easier on both the delivery and on the product management side because product managers then become masters of problem discovery and customer-centric validation of that problem. And the team becomes master of delivery. And, and I think that sounds like, oh, well, you're just asking the team to like create software and you don't want their opinion. That, and that's always the risk in talking about this because that's the assumption that people make. But actually... The best collaboration is when you have a super knowledgeable and empathetic product manager for the customer problem who can really represent the customer. Then you, you treat the delivery team, the design and engineering teams as sort of masters of solutioning. And so they're taking that problem on board and they're solving it in a way that's completely divorced from the selection of the problem itself. And that frees up both teams to become much more expert and much more masterful at what they're doing. And so the idea here is that you get more excellence, you get better strategic decisions, you get more, more from the team and they're happier because they're actually working on, they're able to pull the levers on the thing that they are tasked with and accountable for because they own that part of the process. So that, that separation also, I think, really helps in job satisfaction. Yeah, and I think the distinction you mentioned was important to highlight again. You're not just saying, hey, product managers just tell the devs what to do. You're saying there's a collaborative process where product managers understand and are empathetic with the customer and the problem. And the devs are there to look at that and say, okay, here's how we come up with a proper solution given our expertise and our background. So there's that clear distinction between product management and delivery, but there's a collaboration process that takes place between the problem experts and the solution experts. Is that that a good way to put it? Absolutely. That's a perfect way to put it. I mean, again, it goes back to like domain expertise and mastery. We want to encourage that in both domains. But we also want to free the two domains up to solve things and do things the best possible way. And and if you have in the product ownership model, the biggest criticism I have of that model is that it just you're asking too much of product management and you're asking too much of engineering. And what happens is that the accountabilities get muddled and the mastery gets muddled. And then actually people, nobody's particularly happy. They sort of come to a detente. Or if you have a super charismatic product manager, it all feels good, but you may not be making still those right product decisions. And so this is a way to sort of scale up the right kinds of product decisions and keeping the customer always at the center of that. So yeah, it's not about product managers telling the team what to do. It's about product managers bringing opportunities to the team so that they can solve it. Yeah. And I think that telling what to do is a misconception a lot of people have. Now, the stool track process is, did you use it prior to Contentful? I've used it at different levels and layers of success, uh, different places. And the thing about Contentful, which I'm really grateful for, is the, the fact that we were able to reboot because nobody was happy with the process that was in place before. And we had a lot of, I think there was a lot of agreement that we needed to make some changes. And I partnered with my engineering counterpart, Jeff Glasson, who's fantastic. And we worked together to sort this process out with the team and in collaboration with the team. And it's been, I would say, probably the, the cleanest, uh, purest version of this process. But I have worked with it in different, uh, different, like I said, at different levels at, at other companies like Zendesk. 
Now, what, what have you learned as you've kind of gone through and, and used the process at a couple of different companies? Where do you think people have some challenges there? Yeah, so, you know, when you talk about separation of the problem validation and the opportunity from delivery, the, you know, engineers go to university to become engineers and they can get degrees in it and they can solve theoretical problems that then help them be really creative and masterful in solving practical problems later. Product management, not so much. There's no place you can go that teaches you how to be super empathetic to customers, how to do a lot of customer engagement and research, how to really size the opportunity that you're talking about, how to figure out, is this the right thing to do? How do I put this problem to solve in the kind of context of all the other things that we could do? How do I make that right decision about where to invest? And there's no, like I said, there's no school for that. So the biggest challenge that I've had is trying to help the team level up on those different aspects of being a great product manager so that they can feel confident and make the right decisions. And it's a, there is no, I wish there were a program like that because I I feel like there is a need for it. There's a, it's a marrying together of technology, business, and incredibly good communication skills. (laughs) So yeah, we're, we're starting to see more product management courses, classes, degrees, even, I mean, my, my alma mater, Carnegie Mellon has a degree now in product management. You can get a master's. It's kind of crazy. I mean, think about how much it's changed in the last 15 years, but I do agree with you. It is, uh, in general, it has a a long way to go still. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So as we're talking about product managers, focusing on customer needs and problems, what should their frame of reference be? I mean, should it be a, a revenue frame for product managers? And then as we think about how designers and engineers participate in this process, which frame of reference should they use? Yeah, so I, you know the um, Clayton Christensen in the milkshake video, the, you know, the, he, he did the jobs to be done framework. Yeah, um, yep. yeah. it's brilliant. If, if anybody listening to this podcast has not Googled Clayton Christensen and looked at the milkshake video, definitely do it. But, yeah, in an old episode, we have Bob Moesta, who worked on Jobs to be Done. So we cover a good bit of the framework in an old uh, Product Love episode. But uh, it's about time to have Bob on again, I think, too. So, so Bob Moesta is obviously also yeah. the, the co-founder of that framework. And the great thing about that framework is that it really separates the thinking and the frame that you adopt when you're looking at a problem versus the solution. And uh, so I love to use that, you know, the milkshake is it food that's a delicious treat or is it a commuter device? And so what the, in, in the milkshake video, what he talks about is that they discover that people were actually using milkshakes as a commuter device. They wanted to enhance their commute and this was the thing that did it. And I think it's the same, you know, you could think about like any software problem in that same frame. What is the customer actually trying to do versus what is our, how could we like make our software with the least amount of changes, do something relatively similar to what we think that is that they want to do. And that second uh, thing that I described is off of the default path. If you don't zoom out and really focus on the customer problem, what they're trying to achieve. And when you get that frame for the product manager, that's the right frame because from doing that revenue flows. So I don't think it's like your only goal is to enhance revenue. I think your only goal is to solve problems and then you sort the problems by their revenue potential. And those are probably the ones you should invest in first because that's good for the company. So it's actually customer first. Then you look at the revenue frame as like, this is a way to weight those problems, but it's one factor in the weighting. It's only one factor. So what about design and engineering? Yeah, I mean, so for design and engineering, it's like, what is the most creative, elegant way to solve this problem? 
and they need to think not about software development in that solutioning process, be you know, fully capable, well-rounded humans when they look at the solution and what it could be. So for example, for any given problem, there's usually a paperwork process version of a solution or there's a software version of a solution. In some cases, the process solution might actually be better, cheaper, easier for customers to adopt than a pure software solution. But sometimes it's that thing of, you know, if all you have in your hand is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so it's that if you want to get serious about solutioning, you have to look at the entire toolbox that you have, really think creatively about how to solve the problem that's been brought to us as a validated customer problem. And it really frees up design and engineering then to not think about everything as a coding task, but to think about it broadly as how do we bring the value to this solution. And I think when you can get design and engineering in that frame, it's really magical because they stop looking at everything as like a new backlog item and they start looking at it as like, how do we create value for this customer? Sometimes it's just an email. Sometimes it's building a new feature. Awesome. Now let's talk a little bit about alignment, product management with other departments and specifically how product managers should align or best align maybe with, with the other departments in a company, but also maybe with the lens of how does dual track affect this both positively and negatively? So yeah, that's a, it's a really great question because alignment often comes down to relationships and your communication skills, and it really shouldn't. I mean, if you really want to be, I mean, that's a good part of it and people love to communicate and get along with each other. That's a good thing. But you want to have some kind of principles of like, what do we put first? So I think the alignment, the best way for product managers to really achieve alignment is to help everybody else understand the investment opportunity that we're tackling or the, you know, refactoring will cause us this reduction in costs and savings and why we should do that. But I guess what I'm saying is like bring some numbers to the party, like try to figure out how to be strategic from a numbers point of view. And it's a great place to at least anchor the conversation. And then you can go from there and there are other concerns that you would learn about and, and carry forward. But I think it's really trying to bring data into that discussion and not make it an opinion-based or a, or a relationship-based type of decision-making. So yeah. I imagine this becomes difficult today with, you know, in a lot of cases, I mean, you're in Europe, uh, I'm here in the States, we, we have different levels of pandemic at the moment. Remote work, though, still is kind of the norm. So uh, harder, right? Yeah, it, I mean, so to be honest with you, it's harder and easier. So I think the harder part is you have to work hard on a Zoom to get engagement from somebody. People can easily tune out and sit back a bit, look at their phone. So there is a challenge there that in person is, is easier to tackle. However, it also makes you much more disciplined about how you're going to tackle the call. So, you know, one of the things that I encourage my team to do is think about what it is that you want to accomplish in this call. Is it a decision? Are you trying to get agreement on something? Are you trying to learn something? What is your goal here? And use those Zoom moments that we now have to be in all the time to really achieve your goal, which is alignment in the end. So that the things that came easier in face-to-face communication now, you just have to be more strategic and think a little bit more about. But the thing I love about the COVID quarantine and all the, all the terrible things that have happened. The one good thing that's happened is I think people have realized that they can function remotely and we don't need to fly around as much as we did before. And that the face-to-face thing is important, but it isn't everything. And there, there are ways to work asynchronously that work. And the reason why I love that is because it's better for the planet. It's, we need to start adjusting our lifestyles. That is a fact for global climate change. And so I'm actually grateful for that aspect of the of the coronavirus. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but uh, I think it's taught us a lot of good lessons, actually. No, I, I think it's cha- I know it's changed my perspective for travel, right? And made me think even looking to the future, if there was no coronavirus at all, 
you know, would I really need to take this trip or would I really need to do that? Uh, is that something I could just handle remotely or even, you know, potentially not do? Because I think the default always was like, let's get in front of people, let's have FaceTime. And I, I think it's shown that we can be just as productive. And I feel personally more productive actually during this time. But I think that's because I have a, a difficulty having that distinct line between work and non-work. And it, when you're working from home, it kind of all blends together. That's because work for some people, right? Like it, that, yeah, I've been the same chat sometimes. Yeah, yeah, no, I absolutely. I, I feel my productivity has probably gone up a good bit. But one area, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, that I think a lot of people struggle on is part of that face-to-face was being able to pull up a whiteboard and, and you know whiteboard through a problem, so to speak. What do you do? What do you advise people to do there? What does your team do? You know, I, when I look back at my whiteboarding experiences, I think the part of the joy that I had in that was that sort of like, performative drama of like writing stuff in the purple light, you know? And I realized that like, well, actually, you know, maybe the dog and pony show in front of a whiteboard isn't the best way to like talk through a problem. Maybe there's other ways to do it. So that I think the downside of not having a whiteboard is it does unleash this sort of like energy of the moment and it is dramatic and you can work together and collaborate. And that feels really good. I think probably the, I can't remember which side of the brain it is, the right or the left, but there is a benefit in not having that and having to think through and actually write down what your thoughts are. And I, I think people really undervalue and underestimate writing things down. Just write it down and write down what your intentions are and what your considerations of a problem are. And that is more helpful often than drawing pictures. So I think maybe, I don't know, maybe maybe Corona will also result in a more written down product culture for, for us. Yeah, that, that's um, interesting, right? Because I do think when, you know, when I whiteboard, I feel like I'm solving something and it, it's productive. But at the same time, if I go back, you know, a day later and it's still up there on the whiteboard, I'm like, hmm, it's like there's some holes here maybe. And I do find that if I'm, you know, like you said, writing something down, whether it's putting it in a Word doc or building a slide, my my results are a little more cohesive and coherent, right? So yeah, it slows you down, right? Because you, and it, and it, you're forced a, a kind of a discipline on how you communicate. And I think it's actually not a bad thing. Yeah, as much yeah. As I love people pens and you know whatever. I, I I think writing it down is better. I can see that. That's something I have to pay attention to and see how that you know the whiteboarding exercise, how important it is and where. You know, you've, you've been doing product management now at, at a bunch of different companies of a bunch of different sizes and in a bunch of different countries, as it turns out. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to jump into that in a minute, too. But let's talk about the different sizes, different stages. What, talk to me about how product management changes and what works at the different stages of a company. Yeah, so it's super interesting how that works. So, the you know, startups... I've worked at very tiny companies with seven, eight people. And in that stage, you're all in a room together and it's very easy to generate a shared understanding because you could talk to each other and people over here and they pipe in and there's that conversation takes place consistently. And once you find that early product market fit with a startup, if it's successful, there's usually quite a bit of obvious green space around that initial product market fit that you know you need to flesh out in order to continue the proposition forward. And it isn't actually as strategic as it becomes later when you have many, many, many options of where you invest and the kinds of problems that you could solve are much more varied than they were before when you really had to do these next 10 things, otherwise it wasn't going to be viable. And so I think as you go from startup to scale up, it's, it becomes more about changing to a strategic view about investment and really getting people to think about the time that they spend and the energy that they spend on things as investments 
and sort of recognizing that it probably wasn't, it's not going to flow in the same way that it might have flowed in a small startup, that now there's a different flow that is more data-driven, more strategic, and you, there's many, many more participants in that conversation. And that then implies a lot of communication that you didn't need to do before. And, and organizing that communication is super critical for transparency across the organization at, at the bigger it gets. And if you don't get that muscle in place as you scale up, you just run into brick walls later where people get out of alignment very quickly. And so you have product marketing, for example, not really knowing what product management is working on or thinking about or what's being delivered oh, and support might get out of alignment then with new features coming out if you don't really have that muscle for communication built in. So the big focus is for me, as we scale up at Contemptful, which we are fortunate enough to be in that phase right now, is putting systems in place that will scale to give transparency to all levels. So it's really about making the, the problem validation all the way through the launch and then the iteration afterwards be transparent from top to bottom. So I want Steve Sloan, our CEO, to be able to look at our, you know, look at the opportunities we're looking into at any moment, go, you know, dig right down into see what's happening and come right back out again and see when the launch date is and what the marketing opportunities are and what the marketing department is working on regarding that launch. So real transparency and and making it an asynchronous self-service kind of transparency where you don't have to be in giant meeting rooms all the time explaining everything that there's a there's a level of information that's always available. Great. Let's talk a little bit about the location. I'm kind of curious, as I brought that up in the beginning of the question, you know, how do, how do you see product management being different? You've done it from everywhere from the heart of Silicon Valley to obviously some of the tech centers of Europe across many different cultures. Talk to me about how product management has been different. What's been the same? What's, what's been different? That's super interesting. I think one of the most interesting things is cultural differences. And I think people really underestimate cultural differences, even between cultures that are not that dissimilar, like, you know, Germany is not that dissimilar in some ways to the United States. On the other hand, it's very, very different. And I mean, there, you could imagine like, you know, maybe Japanese culture being more different than American culture, but German culture is very different. So I guess one of the big challenges that I see is, you know, when you work in Silicon Valley and you are part of the same narratives that everybody else is part of, there's a kind of a baseline of understanding with language and the narratives that you're talking about that you can just refer to with shorthand that people get, like, for example, identifying opportunities. Most people would know what that means in Silicon Valley. But actually in, in Germany or in Denmark, where I was before, those words don't translate to the whole bulk of, of understanding of what that actually means in practice. And so what you end up needing to do is writing things down, explain exactly what goes into opportunity validation and what that means and, and what it takes to get there. So I think it makes me over-communicate in a good way. I will also say there's different levels of maturity in different countries about product management. Product management is extremely well-established in the Bay Area, for example, not so much in Germany and Berlin where I'm located. It's a pretty new function. And so the, the industry here is in that early stage of, of really figuring out what is a product manager supposed to be doing and like, how do we recruit for them? You know, what's the, what are the right expectations to have? So it's, it's a, I have to say it's been different everywhere and the adjustments are, are large because you have, you have to accommodate for a different cultural understanding of the language. You also have to accommodate for a lack of experience. Got it. So a lot of it has to do with kind of the, the maturity of the function in the different areas and, maybe the lens at which they look through success. Is that a good way to put it? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, in Germany, um, for example, it's very hard to recruit uh, women into product management. There just are very few women who are in product management here because it's a very new function. And for, you know, obvious reasons that, you know, because of the, the gender gap in engineering and that we all kind of talk about and try to wrestle with the flow through to become product managers is just less. And so we, we kind of, ref, it reflects that gender gap. So I think, you know, what we try to do is grow our team with knowledge. And we also try to find people that not necessarily have all of the relevant experience, but enough of it that we think we could then train them and help nurture them into the job. So, and I wouldn't necessarily do that as much in Silicon Valley as I would here. Because we in Silicon Valley, there are more more folks with more experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that leads us to another good thread to go down, which is hiring. You know, talk to me about your process for hiring product managers. Yeah, so I'm I've sort of boiled it down now after years of experimentation to something that works for me, and I don't know if this works for everybody, but I ask very directive questions about situations or circumstances, and I want to in an open ended way, and I want the product manager to sort of explain to me how they've handled those situations, and by really listening to their response and not listening for my expected answer, you can start to sort of see inside their mental process and their experience level. And the way I kind of kick that conversation off is by asking product managers to come with a case study. So there's no surprises. They're familiar with the content that they're talking about. So they achieve a very fast comfort level with the conversation. It's not something, it's not a new question every time. It's very familiar material. And then I can really hear how they've worked through problems or challenging circumstances or the twists and turns, you know, as things develop in product as they always do. And I learn more from that. I don't even actually care so much about the content of the case study as how they talk about it, their confidence level with the details, their kind of composure with, you know, how they address challenges. And, and I'm looking for like communication skills, analytical abilities, and also self-knowledge to the level where they can take on board new lessons. Because I think, there's a, you know, the one thing you can say about product management that I think is true universally in software, at least anyway, is that you must have a growth mindset. You must be able to take on feedback and actually incorporate it into your thought process and continue to grow all the time. Otherwise, you can't keep up with customers because they're changing all the time. So those are the things I listen for. And I use a case study because they then are in control of what content we're talking about. And I'm just asking questions. And it's much easier for them to show their best. I like that. I like that. And it reminds me of something you, you mentioned earlier, which is, I think, encapsulated in some of this. It's like, you know, you said something in effect of being your customer via the team, right? Talk to me a little bit about more about that. So you want the team to really channel the customer. You want them to really understand the pain that the customer has that you're trying to resolve so that the micro decisions that they need to make where they may not have a, an actual proof point in somewhere in the research, they can still, they're in the right mindset. So they're much more likely to make those right micro decisions over time. And that what I, I guess the, the way I see it is if the product manager can really paint the picture fully for the team about what the customer situation is and the problems that they have and the opportunities that we have to help them, the team can take that on board in an empathetic way. And that's how you sort of like get the team to be the customer in that as much as possible. And it's a learning process. It's not perfect. Of course, it doesn't always work, but that's the goal is to really bring that customer into the center of the discussion so that those little decisions that you don't have the proof point for, they still might end up more likely in the right place that you can then validate later. And and as part of that hiring process, when you're talking about the case study and being able to work your way through that, that, that's in large part trying to figure out if they're going to help, you know, your team be more of the customer, so to speak, correct? 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, th- I think it's a, you know, empathy when you're talking to a product manager and you're trying to see, are they going to be able to subsume their ego in a conversation with a customer so that they can listen with an open mind and then, and really take in that information, take it on board and then be able to paint that picture back for the team. And that level of confidence and kind of emotional intelligence and empathy is really key for product managers because they won't be able to really communicate with customers at the right level unless they have that. So one of the things I listen for is ego. Like if there's too much of that in a conversation, if they always talk about their successes and they use the I, I was really successful in this, I did this, I did that, that already tells you that their head is not really in the right place because they should be in collaboration with the team always. It should always be, we did this, we did that. And it should always be in the context of the customer told me this. And so I was trying to work with the customer to figure out how we could solve their problem. And if if you start to hear language like that, I think that's always a really good sign that that person is curious. Like that's the thing that's really needed there is curiosity and empathy. Yeah. Yeah. And let's pull back in the thread. We talked about a scalability, right? If you're, if you're hiring for PMs, especially at somewhere where there's going to be scale, what do you expect product managers to know about scaling and what should they be prepared for, right? Because, and how do you address that during the hiring process? Like, are these the product managers that aren't just great at the, the early stages of a company, but are, are great at, at the scaling stages? Yeah. I mean, so in a, in a way that like scaling is a magazine subscription, you never stop paying for it if you enjoy the subscription, right? So you, you start, you invest when you build something and you make all the decisions that you make to match the amount of performance and load that you have at that moment. And you make those decisions with the best information that you have and the best intentions. And then a year later, you realize this doesn't work anymore. I need something new. I need to build it a different way, or I need to try a new technology to you know, mediate some problem. And I think the way we often talk about it is technical debt. And actually, I don't think technical debt is the way to think about it. The way to think about it is this is a consistent investment you're making in delivering the right experience for customers. So scale isn't something that you should tackle as a problem. It's something that you should tackle as a feature. It's the way that you can continuously deliver the best possible experience for your customer with the least amount of downtime and outages and all of the bad things that come when your demand is less than your ability to meet that demand. And I, and I also don't think any team should be afraid of it and that we should not talk about it in any other way than a normal thing to do all the time. So like I said, it's a magazine subscription once a month, address scale in your area, find out where things are getting a little dicey and plan for the future. And, you know, roadmap that right along with your next wowie feature that you want to build because it's... it's yeah, scale is a feature along with quality and, and the wowie features as you just put it, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, it, performance and scalability are features and we have to think about it that way. Awesome. That's great. Well, as we're kind of getting to the end today, I thought I'd first turn our attention to the future. What trends do you see coming up in product management? Well, I love this trend of more university programs. That's, that sounds good. I wasn't aware that there are, like, there are formal programs in place already, and that's great to hear. I think that the thing that it becomes clearer over time to me anyway is that at least at a certain scale of company, that you, are, you need to have some business background along with your technology background. You need to be able to work with numbers in a way that is intelligent and tells a story. It's not, not because you want to be an accountant, but because numbers help you tell stories with data. And I think a lot of product management is telling that story across the organization, convincing people why this is the right opportunity and, and how customers could benefit. And to do that with numbers is really compelling. So I think you know, what I would wish for all of my product managers is that they could, they had training on how to build a business case effectively, how to you know, tell stories with numbers and get good at that modeling. 
I don't think all product managers have that. You know, they tend to be renaissance people that come out of one type of background or another, and they've had engineering experiences or they've had other kind of technology experiences and they find themselves in the job, but they need this skill. So I think, I think that like scaling up there somehow is, a, I think, part of our future. I also think being more like thinking more about being a brand manager for your area of features or your area of the product is something that I would really encourage people to think about. Like, what is the, how do you want your product to land with customers as an entirety or your piece of it? How do you really want them to feel about it? How, what do you want them to do with it? And think about it in that sort of vein, rather than thinking about it as a, the next feature that gets them these additional pieces of functionality. Think about that holistically, that really the bigger picture. And that is, that's a sort of a brand management kind of capability when you think about even bringing a new consumer product to market, the way it sits in the supermarket, the, the way that it gets advertised, how you talk about it, those are all as important to building great experiences as, uh, uh, as anything else. And I think product managers need to think more about that over time. Yeah, it's interesting. You, you talk about numbers. Uh, Pendo did a study a, a little while back, and I did a presentation in London maybe eight months ago, give or take, about the differences between product management in the States and in Europe. And interestingly, there's more of a focus in an average product manager in Europe than there is in the United States. On numbers. Uh, which I, yeah, more of a focus on numbers, more of a focus on things like revenue, uh, you know, more harder metrics. Though there's a significant like difference in hiring, right? There just isn't enough product managers at an average European company, as, as we saw. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It's interesting to hear about the, the comparison with numbers. And I will say that a lot of the product managers on my team have some facility with it. it. It's definitely true that they're not without any background there, but I, you know, I, I don't know that that's necessarily that, that different in my experience from the U.S., but it's interesting to hear that. Yeah, I think if we had looked at maybe just San Francisco or just the Bay Area, there might have been more of a focus on numbers, especially these days in metrics. But even there, there's a, a lacking I saw in kind of the, the revenue and retention focus numbers and a lot more of like geeking out in the products feature kind of things, you know, as as people coming out of engineering might be more want to do than say a product manager that might come from a business side or even from a liberal arts side. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really like some of the most curious, empathetic, interesting people might be attracted to a liberal arts education when they go to university. And so that, and that's great, but then also just take some business classes, <laughs> like just figure out how to do the modeling because that'll just make your job so much easier in the long run and more yeah, effective. Ab- absolutely. And, e- and even on the engineering side, if you're getting an engineering degree and want to be a PM, take some business classes. Totally. Yeah. So let's turn our attention to Ben. What's your favorite product? I got to, this is going to sound really lame. Uh, it's Pendo, of course, obviously. That my, my favorite favorite product <laughs> day in day out is the commenting features in Google Docs. I absolutely love the workflow that they support, and it's just the right balance of attention getting, notification, being able to do actual work, translating that work into the actual document. I just I love that whole editing flow that they do, and I'm always rewarded by it. So that I would I was really thinking about this. I'm like, yeah, that's probably not a great answer because it you know, but it really is such a great feature. I love it. Yeah, no, I I do love the collaboration on the whole Google infrastructure. It's really powerful. I've I've tried to use it occasionally on the Microsoft side of things when I've worked with people that collaborate that way, and I've I've found it difficult. Maybe it's just because I haven't used it as much. But the whole collaboration in Office three six five, I believe it's called, is uh, 
has been difficult for me personally. Now, I wish Google search worked as well on their docs. I swear I build documents button. and they disappear. But uh, That is the Achilles heel of Google Drive and Google Docs is that, yeah. So the, the, thing that's, the thing I love about it is it brings, the comments thing brings all the information you need to actually be effective in commenting, like the at whoever is brilliant. I remember yeah, the day yeah. before that happened, you know, and they're like that being able to turn it into a task or being like, all of those things are, I think just really clever and good. So, yeah. But yeah, um, no, really, really well executed. And my uh, success and revenue team at, at Pendo is going to be super happy that Pendo is also on, on your list of folk products. <laughs> Absolutely. is. So what, one final question uh, for you today, you know, three words to describe yourself. Yeah, I had to write these down because it took me a minute to think about it. So I think it's curious, process biased, and empathetic. I think those are the three things. And maybe it's no surprise because that's what I talked a lot about and <laughs> what I think is good product management. But so maybe I'm just flattering myself. But I, I think those are those are the three words I would use. Curious. You know, it was definitely interesting. I heard a lot of empathy and I was like wondering as I was asking that question, is Ben going to pick empathy? I was like, I, you know, I, I know Ben, you know, I, it's been a while since we spent time together, but you know, we, we did hang out quite a bit in San Francisco back in the day. And I would, I would probably have picked empathy if I was you know, forced to pick three words, but uh, I was curious if that would come out. So awesome. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's a word I, you, as it turns out, it's uh, one of the top three always empathy is always there. Curiosity is another one that's, that's high on the list. When I talk to product leaders, it, it's very interesting looking at, you know, kind of the personality characteristics of product leaders when you've talked to, you know, now 97, 98 of them and asked this question. There's your next book. Yeah, yeah. No, it could be, a, it could be an interesting book or, or presentation, definitely. Well, thank you, Ben. This has been awesome. Really great to talk to you. Thanks. Thanks.